from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, you ought to hear this. It sounds like a war going on. They're using all these unique names. They call them handles. The social media craze of the 1970s. CB Radio. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay sit. From the American Broadcasting Company's Bicentennial Center in New York City, Harry Reasoner. Americans had anticipated the Bicentennial for years. So when 1976 arrived, with the Vietnam War just over and the anti-war movement just over and Nixon finally out and Watergate done, there was this sense of national relief and patriotic fervor was really whipped up. Good morning. We're here and we'll be here throughout the day in this red, white and blue studio to take a look at what the second oldest major continuing nation in the world is doing to celebrate the 200th anniversary of its independence. But during this very week in January 1976, most of the music on Billboard charts was not exactly rousing Americana. And number three on the main pop chart was Diana Ross with her theme from Mahogany. And right above it at number two was Barry Manilow singing the song he wrote about writing songs. I write the songs that make the young girls cry. I write the songs, I write the songs. Hard to imagine anything further from red-blooded American fervor than treacle like that. But at number one, the bicentennial spirit of rugged individualist insurgency was alive and well. It came in the unlikely form of a country pop song about guys who drive 18-wheelers around the country. The story first aired on Sound Opinions, the music show out of WBEZ in Chicago, and it was produced by one of our two new Studio 360 producers, Evan Chung. Uh, Breaker 1-9, this here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, Big Ben? Come on. Oh, yeah, 10-4, Big Ben, for sure, for sure. By golly, it's clean, clear to Flagtown. Come on. Yeah, it's a big 10-4 there, Big Ben. Yeah, we definitely got the front door, good buddy. Convoy is a novelty country song about a group of big rig truck drivers banding together to fight against the man on the highways. It was a massive hit not just in the U.S., but in Canada, the U.K., Ireland, Australia, New Zealand. And as you look deeper into the story of Convoy, you find that it leads down some very surprising paths involving working-class rebellion, the advertising industry, conflict in the Middle East, hamburger buns, communications technology, and Christmas music. So to begin with, who was C.W. McCall? Well, he doesn't actually exist. He's really the product of a couple of advertising guys in Omaha. Yeah, my name is Bill Fries. Uh, I'm sometimes known as C.W. McCall. Bill Fries was an ad executive working at a Nebraska agency in 1972 when he hired a young touring musician as a jingle writer. Hi there, I'm Chip Davis, composer of the C.W. McCall audio product. 
said, Chip, the first job I have for you is to write the uh, background music for these television commercials for a little-known bread product up in Sioux City, Iowa called Old Home Bread. Old Home Bread was a brand of hamburger buns, rolls, donuts, you name it. Bill pitched them the idea of a folksy series of musical TV commercials that had an ongoing storyline, like a country music soap opera. It evolved around a couple of characters named C.W. and Mavis. And Mavis was like a gum-chewing waitress at some little tiny cafe in Pisgah, Iowa, and C.W. was a truck driver and would stop in there, and they sort of had a little love affair going on. Now, we've been every place between here and South Sioux, we've seen us a truck stopping waitress or two, but this gal's built like a burlap bag full of bobcats. She's got it together. Chip composed the music while Bill wrote these talking blues lyrics and voiced the CW character himself. The commercials aired in just a handful of states, Minnesota, Iowa, Kansas, etc. But as each new spot aired and the romance plot picked up, the campaign became a local phenomenon. Fan clubs sprung up. CW fan clubs and Mavis fan club. <laughs> it was just unreal. The ads became so popular that they actually had to put listings in the TV guide as to when the spots were coming on. We struck something there, kind of down-home reality. People identified with these characters. Bill and Chip decided to release the music from the Bread commercials as an actual single. They recorded it at Chip's studio, credited the song to the C.W. McCall character, and put it out locally under the title The Old Home Filler Up and Keep on a Truckin' Cafe. It never closes. We put that out, and within a matter of just weeks, it started getting so much jukebox play and all that. And we were, by the way, that was one of my very first ad campaigns. I got all the guys from the recording studio, got them a bunch of quarters, and we'd all go out on like a Friday night, run around and plug the jukeboxes and all the bars in Omaha and hit five plays of the same song and then hit the road and go to the next bar. (laughs) That marketing campaign apparently worked because it sold 30,000 copies in the Midwest, prompting MGM Records to release it to a national audience. Doggone if it didn't get in on the country charts, the billboard charts, number 13 or something like that. (laughs) Wow! That gave Bill and Chip the opportunity to record an entire album under the C.W. McCall name of songs about truck driving. But while C.W. McCall, the character, was a truck driver, neither of the songwriters had any experience themselves. Of course, I was not a truck driver, but I am a writer and I write about trucks. (laughs) And at that time, truck driving offered them plenty to write about because truckers were key figures in the oil crisis that was taking over the country in the 70s. Here's basically what happened. In October 1973, war broke out between Israel and a coalition of Arab countries. From dawn this morning, the Israeli and Syrian armies have been slugging it out here high up on the Golan Mountains. The U.S. provided military support to Israel, which angered the Arab nations. To retaliate against the U.S., the Arab countries severely cut back on their oil exports. They will reduce oil production by 5% a month until the Israelis withdraw from occupied territories. If the Arab countries keep that pledge, it would reduce their production by almost 50% in one year. The oil embargo made gas supplies in the U.S. go way down and gas prices go way up, almost doubling. Drivers would wait in four or five hour lines just to get a few gallons, often running out of gas while in the line. And a lot of Americans saw this as evidence that the country was coming undone. There is only 
And you have to understand the context of this is Americans living in this world where cars were like living rooms on wheels. That's Meg Jacobs. She's a professor of history at Princeton and the author of a recent book about the oil crisis called Panic at the Pump. The early 70s is when cars are the biggest and least fuel efficient that they become because there's a sense that we don't have to worry about gas. So it's a fundamental shock to our self-perception. Gas was rationed and regulated. Johnny Cash was enlisted to urge Americans to drive less. But until the shortage eases, it's up to all of us to make what there is go further. There's a shortage of energy but not of the American spirit. But most infamously, to conserve oil, President Nixon signed a law that lowered the speed limit on all national highways to 55 miles per hour. That angered millions of American drivers for years, notably Sammy Hagar. So that's a very real infringement as Americans conceive of their rights to cheap oil and all the driving they want to do. That's a very real infringement on that sense of who they are. And it was truck drivers who felt the effect of the speed limit law the most, particularly the independent ones who didn't work for big companies or belong to the union. They had to pay more for the diesel when they fueled up. There was less of it available, and they now had to abide by a 55-mile-per-hour speed limit. And this pushed them really over the edge. So these truck drivers came up with ways to get around the law, aided by a new tool, the Citizens Ban Radio. As many listeners probably know, Citizens Band radios, or CBs, are walkie-talkie-like devices that allow you to converse with other people over certain radio frequencies. And they're small enough to fit in the cab of a truck, so truckers could talk with each other while on the go. Truckers constructed a whole culture around CB radios. And that caught the attention of Bill Freese and Chip Davis, the C.W. McCall musicians. Bill had gotten a CB and had it in his Jeep. And he'd, he'd tell me, he'd call me up and go, you ought to hear this. It sounds like a war going on. They're using all these unique names. They call them handles. Handles, just like in their modern incarnation on Twitter, are unique nicknames that truckers would adopt to identify themselves by on the radio. My handle was Music Man. <laughs> and like on Twitter and in chatroom culture in the recent past, Truckers developed an entire CB-specific language. Breaker, breaker there, one nine. This here's a music man calling for the rubber duck. Over. Everybody said 10-4 instead of yes. <laughs> Speaking in this code, truckers used CB radios to coordinate resistance to that hated 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. They would warn each other over the airwaves of upcoming speed traps. Okay, you've got two smokies parked. But they also used CB radios to form tightly packed blocks of trucks known as convoys. A trucker would get on the radio and say to all the other nearby trucks, hey, let's all drive together as a pack. Suddenly, the truckers had strength in numbers. As a group, they could drive as fast as possible. The trucks on the inside of the convoy were completely shielded, and there was very little the cops could do. 
As the oil crisis went on, truckers took this convoy concept to a national level. The truckers start to warn, if you don't do something to sort of alleviate our situation, if you don't repeal the 55-mile-per-hour speed limit, roll back prices at the pump, we're going to shut the country down. We're going to bring the country to its knees. An impromptu trucker uprising began on December 4, 1973, when a fed-up truck driver parked his rig in protest in the middle of the interstate in Pennsylvania. Word of his rebellion spread to other truckers across the country via the CB channels. And before long, you had a nationwide convoy of parked trucks with 1,800 rigs blocking a New Jersey bridge, more than 100 miles of the Ohio Turnpike shut down, and simultaneous shutdowns in Tennessee, Arkansas, Chicago, and beyond. For one day, you had a completely spontaneous nationwide protest that only could have happened using CB radios, and it led to a longer, more devastating trucker strike the next month. But some truckers weren't willing to give up a paycheck and stop driving, and the truckers who were on strike retaliated against them. By literally lining up on the side of the road and sniping at truckers who were still on the move, by littering the highways with nails, these became quite violent episodes requiring that governors call out the National Guard in various states. To be clear, that's people literally shooting at moving trucks. A bomb was put in a tractor cab in Arkansas. One trucker died when a brick was dropped into his windshield from an overpass. But surprisingly, the violence didn't turn public opinion against the truckers. They tapped into the frustration that millions and millions of Americans were experiencing already on the gas lines. The public viewed truckers as romantic modern cowboy figures, bravely standing up for their own rights. And that sentiment left an opening for a song about truckers banding together to stick it to the man to become a hit. And that, of course, is where Convoy comes in. Bill was just fascinated by it as to this big movement out there in the road. We wanted to do a song that was kind of reporting on this. So Bill Freese took all the lingo he'd picked up listening to the CB channels and wrote the lyrics to a story song about a trucker with the handle Rubber Duck who picks up more and more trucks via the CB radio to form a giant convoy stretching from coast to coast, pursued by helicopters and the National Guard. I said to Chip, um, we got to make this sound really military-like. we got to have some horns, French horns, <laughs> trumpets, and a chorus, and uh, make a real production number out of this. Uh, Breaker 1-9, this here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, big fan? Come on. Uh, yeah, 10-4, Big Ben, for sure, for sure. By golly, it's clean, clear to Flagtown, come on. Yeah, it's a big 10-4 there, Big Ben. Yeah, we definitely got the front door, good buddy. Mercy sakes alive, looks like we got us a convoy. As soon as the DJs around the country played this thing, the switchboards lit up and everybody wanted to hear it again. The success of Convoy went way beyond a single song. It kicked off a whole CB radio craze. Sales of CB radios skyrocketed, and not just to truckers, but to the general public, who were intrigued by the song and by the lingo it used. By 1979, about half of the cars and trucks on the nation's highways will be equipped with CB units. Four to 500,000 new radios were sold each month in the year after Convoy came out, including a C.W. McCall signature model. Dozens of copycat songs about CB radios were released, and Hollywood put out a slew of CB-inspired movies and TV shows, including a film version of Convoy, directed by Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, nothing but a two-bit, lying, cheating, law-breaking trucker! 
What the hell are you? So what happened to the musicians behind Convoy after that big success? After recording six albums as the C.W. McCall character in the 70s, Bill Freese, the ad exec turned lyricist and vocalist, grew tired of it all. So he quit both the advertising and music business. People in the business were just amazed. Well, why don't you take this another step, you know, make another well, number one record? So I'm not interested in that. Instead, Bill moved to Uray, Colorado, and served three terms as the town's mayor. As for Chip Davis, the composer, he was able to quit his day job as a jingle writer and use his C.W. McCall royalty money to fund a musical endeavor of his own. I had another project going on simultaneously called Mannheim Steamroller. Yes, that's right. Chip Davis is the same Chip Davis who's the mastermind behind Mannheim Steamroller, the classical rock hybrid new age band best known for its mega-selling Christmas albums. In fact, the C.W. McCall Band and Mannheim Steamroller were the same people. We used to wear blue jeans with tails coats for the Mannheim Steamroller part, and then we'd take off the tails coats and put on a blue jean jacket, and then we were a country band. And we don't think the audience ever caught on that it was the same guys. The craziness of the CB radio fad ended up petering out by the early 80s, and the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit law was ultimately repealed in 1995. But that's how we get from local bread commercials to the Middle East to an international number one single to a cultural phenomenon to Mannheim Steamroller, all starting with a couple of advertising guys in Omaha who, by the way, never really liked country music. At one point in time, I made a statement. I said, there's two things I'll probably never do in my life. And one is live in Nebraska and one is write country music. And the next thing I knew, I was living in Nebraska writing country music. It was kind of really crazy. Well, we rolled up Interstate 44 like a rocket sled on rails. We tore up all of our swindle sheets and left them sitting on the scales. By the time we hit that shy town, them bears was getting smart. They'd brought up some reinforcements from the Illinois... That story was produced by Evan Chung and originally aired on Sound Opinions on WBEZ in Chicago. You can listen to more of their stories at soundopinions.org or by subscribing on iTunes. And you'll be hearing more here from Evan. He has just joined our team. Some of the most interesting theatrical productions staged over the last few years didn't actually have any stage at all, not in the conventional sense. For instance, just here in New York City, last year there was an opera performed among the exhibits at the American Museum of Natural History. One of my favorites was an adaptation of James Joyce's turn-of-the-century story, The Dead, staged in a turn-of-the-century New York townhouse. Is it snowing again, Mr. Conroy? Yes, Lily, I'm afraid we're in for a night of it. The Macbeth-based Sleep No More is still running after years in an abandoned warehouse. These are your masks for this evening. Part of what delights people about these immersive productions is that they break traditions of how plays are staged. The playgoers don't sit still and stare straight ahead. They wander and look around. But where did those traditions around staging that these productions are breaking come from in the first place? 
Joshua Dax is one of America's premier designers of theatrical spaces. And his firm has worked on performance halls all over the world, from Lincoln Center to Hong Kong and many other places. After reading his article for American Theater Magazine about the history of the stage, how it evolved and how it's still evolving, we asked him in to talk. I don't think I'd ever even thought about how theater stages came to be. Then I read your pieces and have become totally fascinated. Oh, thank you. So let's start at the beginning with the Greeks. When Sophocles wrote his play Oedipus Rex 2,400 years ago, what kind of stage was that performed on? And how had it come to be? So there was this idea that somebody had at some point to sort of cross the boundary from storytelling around a campfire to some more structured exercise that had a social purpose. Why do we go to the theater? Why did the Greeks require all citizens to go attend the Feast of Dionysus? It really had something to do with wanting to develop a common set of values. You know, what does it mean to be an Athenian? What do we value as a society? What are our moral responsibilities to each other? And that's what those plays are about. So the purpose in the society was to sort of weld community out of a group of disparate individuals. What did they have at their fingertips in order to help do that? They had some places that already had meaning. You know, there were some early places where performance happened, and they were often big open areas like threshing floors that had some ceremonial purpose. Threshing floors meaning where they processed the grain they'd harvested and spread it down and stomped on it or beat on it to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And that there were temples facing onto the threshing floor and that nearby, in view of the temple, in view of the statue of the god in the temple, was the threshing floor and ultimately the sacrificial altar. Which was used presumably for some kind of harvest ritual? Exactly. So, There were these altars, and there were these threshing floors, and there were these temples, and there were hillsides, right? So you could gather the population on a hillside overlooking all of this and take advantage of the fact that those places had meaning already. And as this evolved, the hillside would eventually be turned into a stone amphitheater. They put seats in. They put seats in. And uh, a building was built for the actors to go and come from. But ultimately, if you look at the theater of Dionysus in Athens, the hillside faced the sacrificial altar and the temple faced the altar. Right. Of course, the Romans did their bit in creating stages. They built on what the Greeks had done, yeah? Absolutely. So the Greeks built their amphitheaters on hillsides. Made perfect sense. It was easy. The slope was already there. The Romans were very sophisticated engineers. And, you know, all you have to do is look at a photograph of the ruins of the Colosseum. They didn't need the hillside. Uh They They built their own hillside. They made their own hillside anywhere they wanted. So they manufactured these places of performance, uh, you know, made to order. So fast forward 1,500 years to England. So we have itinerant performers traveling from town to town, city to city, in their wagons, and and using the wagons as their little stage? Yeah, certainly. It was an easy thing to pull a wagon into a marketplace and get up on the back of it and perform. How do they sell tickets? Selling tickets became an important thing. When you're out in the marketplace, you have to pass the hat. But if you you can go convince the owner of an inn that he should let you use his courtyard, then it's gated. Right? You, you can sell uh-huh. someone a ticket to come in, and the owner can sell beer. So everybody wins. You can take that model and do it for a number of years and then realize, well, wait a minute, we don't need this guy that owns the we inn. We can start from scratch. We can build our own thing. So 
a courtyard theater. Paint a picture of what that is. It's it's like a an inn that has a closed outdoor courtyard, and they build a temporary stage. It was a courtyard ringed by galleries, balconies, a couple of levels, and a flat-floored yard, which was dirt. And in that yard, a platform had been built, uh, usually covered so that it was a bit protected from rain and, and sun. And that was it. There was a little backstage area called the tiring house where you would put on your attire, and off you went. And, and were they in the round, or were those stages usually built at the side? The stages projected out into the yard. Some of the yards were square. Some of the yards were polygonal. But they, they backed onto the building, the stage itself? Yeah. 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 So th- this was kind of a repetition of what had happened centuries before in antiquity with the development of theatrical stages in Greece, right? Well, absolutely true. And what's interesting about both of these things, the evolution of the Greek theater and the evolution of the Elizabethan stage, is that they took models that had been improvised in found spaces and they became refined and sort of codified and institutionalized. So the Renaissance comes along and we're inching closer to the proscenium theater that we know today. What, What happened to Renaissance stages? Well, in the Renaissance, it was a time of great princely wealth and competition for having the latest and greatest stuff. And one way to do something extraordinary was to celebrate the wedding of your son or daughter with a huge party with all kinds of elaborate entertainments. Basically, they were improvised performances in ballrooms or other spaces that were large and available. So after a few decades of improvising these things in spaces that weren't quite suitable, somebody had the idea to sort of adapt an existing space in a palace into what we would recognize as a proscenium theater in Parma, Teatro Farnese. And there's a recognizable stage house uh, with a recognizable proscenium opening. And by the proscenium opening, we mean, of course, the, the a big thing. Arch, a big arch. <laughs> our big arch, and right. a curtain comes down. Yep. And, uh, and a big horseshoe-shaped auditorium, actually, with music and dancing. And, and this branched off into art forms that we now know as opera and ballet. And it wasn't long before we got to things that we would recognize as an Italian horseshoe-shaped opera house, just like La Scala. And basically, that becomes the proscenium theater that we see in theaters up and down Broadway today. That's right. Almost all of which, uh, by the way, were built in this very brief period from 1910 to, to 1930. You have worked a lot in the, in the Broadway theater. Do you think this big installed base of primo New York theaters has constrained and maybe calcified the way that theater is conceived and produced and experienced because we're, we're, we're stuck with all these circa 1920 houses? The Broadway theater is suggestive of a kind of form of play and of musical, and those things these days have to respond to all sorts of commercial pressures that keep casts low and are known quantities that a producer thinks they're going to be able to make money with. So all those buildings were put up in hopes of making a lot of money, and they have, right? They're all on the smallest possible piece of land that you could fit the most possible seats on. There are few amenities. There's lots of seats, a little stage, and practically no dressing rooms. And sure, did those lead to certain forms uh, or did they respond to some existing forms? Certainly the American Broadway musical was born in those spaces and survives in those spaces. Right. Um, But in the the last few decades, uh, interesting cutting-edge theater makers have moved away from conventional prosceniums and 400 seats to, to use these 
all kinds of unorthodox found spaces, right? A great example in New York these days is the Armory, the Park right. Avenue Armory. Where you've worked. I've been helping them adapt it for the last decade, and, and I've and done was, a number the, of shows there as well. Was it a 19th century armory where soldiers drilled? Exactly. This is a building that has a rich history that is palpable from the moment you walk in the door. Um, the idea that this is a military installation, it's a drill hall. Uh, when you put a play on or a dance piece or some strange installation, the building itself is a powerful part of the context, and everything in there in some way plays with it. And in the last, I don't know, 10 years, this big old New York armory has become a, a, an important, cool, cultural venue hosting all kinds of these extravaganzas. Uh, Marina Abramovich did this performance art piece there. The the guy from the band Massive Attack worked with the filmmaker Adam Curtis and put on an extraordinary multimedia show. Kenneth Branagh did a version of Macbeth in this very bloody, muddy staging there. Now, that's been such a success. You and your firm are working with architects, Liz Diller, Rick Scafidio, David Rockwell, on this brand new theatrical space, multi-multi-million dollar space uh, that sounds like the Armory. It's over by the Hudson River. It's called The Shed. Uh, talk about that. Basically, it's a four-story building that contains uh, many things, including some uh, studio theaters and support spaces. And over this entire four-story building, there is a transparent skin, I'll say, that is built as a structure independent of the building, and it can roll on railroad tracks. So imagine that the walls and the ceiling of this building decide to go for a walk, right? And they leave the building behind and they go cover an adjacent plaza. And it creates a new covered indoor space uh, where an outdoor plaza had been. It's almost magical realist, like, like in the movie Howl's Moving Castle. Really an extraordinary technical achievement. We've got a video people can see of the building in motion uh, on our website. So, Joshua, I guess this is stage history repeating itself, as you've explained, uh, yet again, yet again, this, this ad hoc improvised design idea. Oh, an old abandoned armory gets formalized and, and, and codified and becomes an institution. Exactly. And what's fascinating to me is that it's exactly the same trajectory. So the armory is a space that was built for a military purpose that people improvised performances in. And here comes this building, the shed, which is a purpose-built one of those. Yes, exactly. And what it tells us is that you can't keep creativity down and that, that there's a constant oscillation between improvised and designed. If the tools that they have to work with are so formalized that it's just a, a straitjacket, artists respond to that by saying, we're going to do something completely different and we're going to go off and we're going to improvise something. If that's successful, if that improvisation looks fertile, people will take it and run with it. And that will perhaps eventually develop into a formalized, purpose-built, purposely designed version of that. And somebody's going to get bored with that and move on to something else. Joshua Dax, this has been a complete pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Joshua Dax is principal of Fisher Dax Associates, which is a theater design firm based in New York. Studio 360. Over the last three months, 
as the big sexual harassment stories broke, they came closer and closer to home for me. I had known Harvey Weinstein, and I'd been interviewed by Mark Halperin, and I'd been on Charlie Rose's show a lot of times. And then they got even closer to WNYC, where Studio 360 started 17 years ago, and where, until we moved to Slate over the summer, our show had been produced. At WNYC, women have come forward to say that three different current and former show hosts had sexually harassed them, including John Hockenberry, who had hosted The Takeaway since it launched. That case was especially troubling for we at Studio 360 because we are owned by Public Radio International, which also co-owns The Takeaway. What started this cascade of attention to workplace sexual harassment was the excellent reporting about Weinstein in the New York Times and The New Yorker. After those stories broke in October, we all learned that Weinstein's predatory behavior was apparently an open secret in Hollywood and had been the subject of jokes, like this one on 30 Rock. Oh, please. I'm not afraid of anyone in show business. I turned down intercourse with Harvey Weinstein on no less than three occasions out of five. Or all the Kevin Spacey jokes on the Hulu series Difficult People. His hand shot up faster than Kevin Spacey's fly at the opening of Newsies. So, yeah, there were plenty of inside jokes about sexual harassment on TV with names named, which got us to wondering about that, how TV writers have addressed sexual harassment over the years. So we asked June Thomas, who writes about TV for Slate and co-hosts the Double X Gabfest podcast, to take a look. Watching television is something that millions of Americans do every night. There's certain shared ideas and shared experiences that we get from watching television. And so when there are conversations or storylines that deal with sexual harassment, it exposes a lot of people to these ideas. So Mad Men, uh, a great, much garlanded show, uh, is set in the 1960s, and it's about the advertising industry. There are two main women in the show, and that's Peggy Olson, who is a young copywriter, and Joan Holloway, who is what we would now call a personal assistant to one of the Mad Men, because it was a show set in a workplace in the 1960s. That setting was so key, and the presentation of sexism in the office was just a very core part of the show. But there was one episode in particular that really dealt head-on with sexual harassment in the workplace. It was from season four, which aired in 2010, though it's set in 1964, in that episode, there's a young man, a freelancer, he's, he's an artist, uh, and he is giving Joan a hard time. He's just very, very disrespectful. He just says outrageous things to her face. What do you do around here besides walking around like you're trying to get raped? Excuse me? I'm not some young girl off the bus. I don't need some madam from a Shanghai whorehouse to show me the ropes. That was Christina Hendricks and Matt Long. He doesn't just let it go. He escalates his behavior, and he draws a rude, very pornographic cartoon showing uh, Joan and another senior member of staff. And eventually this leads to Peggy, who works with this guy Joey, firing him. And in some ways, she thinks that Joan will be grateful. But later, when they ride the elevator down... I don't know if you heard, but I fired Joey. I did. Good for you. Excuse me? 
Now everybody in the office will know that you solved my problem and that you must be really important, I guess. What's wrong with you? I defended you. You defended yourself. Fine. The cartoon was disgusting. I'd already handled it. And if I wanted to go further, one dinner with Mr. Kreutzer from Sugarberry Ham and Joy would have been off it and out of my hair. So it's the same result? You want to be a big shot. Well, no matter how powerful we get around here, they can still just draw a cartoon. So all you've done is prove to them that I'm a meaningless secretary and you're another humorless bitch. Have a nice weekend. Good night, Peggy. Elizabeth Moss and Christina Hendricks. If it were on paper, I'm all for Peggy's position. Peggy's right. You've got to do what Peggy says. You've got to intervene. You've got to send a clear message. On the other hand, Joan is also right. Joan is somebody who for many years has been denied opportunities, and she's always had to go by circuitous routes. I've always wondered what the writers of Mad Men were thinking when they set up some of these situations. Are they trying to highlight how much things have changed since the 1960s when the show was set? Are they making a commentary about how little things have changed? That even though we don't smoke or drink in the workplace anymore, some of the things that we associate with these long-ago times still persist. Shows like Mad Men are contemporary writers taking a loop back in time and coming up with a version of that time. You can take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile. Let you go and you should know. But then I was very curious to look at Mary Tyler Moore's show, which is also a workplace comedy that was actually made in the 70s. The Mary Tyler Moore Show was set at a TV news program in the Twin Cities, and Mary was a working woman. She was trying to make it on her own, as in the words of the famous opening theme tune. And it was about the challenges that she faced, some in her private life and some at work. And a lot of the humor was in Mary dealing with all these guys in the office. And workplace sexism was definitely one of the things that the show often dealt with. There was one episode in 1973 that really drew my attention. There's a new boss at the station, uh, and it's a woman. And Ted Baxter, the idiot newsreader, comes in all excited. Say, anybody uh, know who the new secretary is? Cute little brunette with a great hiney. <laughs> Put up with Randy Elvier. Here with the official Ted Baxter Pinchorino, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Ted Knight as Ted Baxter. And you know, they're trying to, like, well, Ted, you won't believe it, but the new boss is a woman. And they're, you know, they managed to kind of make him worried. Not because he's pinched someone's hiney, as he calls it. But, hey, it might be the boss and he might be in trouble. Then later on in the episode, there's a resolution to this storyline because Ted, frightened, has been avoiding the new boss. But at some point, he must be introduced to her and is incredibly relieved to learn that the 
person whose hiney he pinched is not the new boss. <laughs> Thanks the Lord. <laughs> I thought you were a cute little brunette with a great hiney. <laughs> You know, when you're watching Mad Men in the 2010s, you're kind of wondering, wow, would that really have been what work was like? And then you see something like the Mary Tyler Moore show, which it's really an artifact of that time. I guess it really does highlight that actually working in an office was uh, like running a sort of sexual obstacle course. In contemporary television, it feels like sexual harassment, when it is dealt with on television, tend to be in comedies that are not exactly realistic, in comedies where there are people who are so oblivious or so unbiddable that you think they would not actually have their jobs. And one of the examples is in the long-running, although now finished, sitcom The Office. Uh, in season two, they had an episode called Sexual Harassment. Throughout this episode, Michael Scott, the boss, who's an idiot, tries to avoid sexual harassment training. Some of the others have to go through it. And then one of his friends, somebody who he admires, makes really unpleasant comments about Phyllis. He makes it seem like he thinks that Phyllis is just an unattractive woman who just doesn't matter. And this kind of upsets Michael, so he intervenes. You know what? I love Phyllis. You know what else? I think she is gorgeous. I think she is an incredibly, incredibly attractive person. Come here. Come here, Chris. Come on. Michael, come on. You oh. don't have to worry. I'm not there. I'm not, report I'm not worried. To HR you know what? The only thing I am worried about is getting a boner. That was Steve Carell as Michael and Phyllis Vance as Phyllis. Michael is trying to make Phyllis feel better, but he still says something completely inappropriate and awkward. The joke at the end really depends on us realizing that Michael isn't evil, but also understanding how Phyllis must feel about it. Phyllis is there in the scene in a way that the cute brunette with a nice hiney is not in the scene in the Mary Tyler Moore show. She's there, and the viewer really sees her awkwardness and her pain and feels that in a way more, although we're sympathetic toward Michael, perhaps. It's Phyllis who really demands our true sympathy. One of the people who I think makes the most interesting commentary on sexual harassment on television is Tina Fey, a great comedy writer and actress. In her current show called Great News, which is this absurdist workplace drama, very influenced by the Mary Tyler Moore show, in fact, it's um, set at a kind of small New Jersey, pretty hopeless TV news station. And Tina Fey also acts in the show occasionally. And in a recent storyline, she was playing uh, a very successful, very high-flying female executive who has been pretty grossly sexually harassing people, men and an older woman on the show. And at one point, her protege, Katie, tells Diana that she's going to be reported. Wait, so you did all that stuff that the guy said you did? I may have made a few 
off-color comments, but you know, that's it's just locker room talk. So I told a couple guys they had nice bulges. Take the compliment. <laughs> that was Brigger Heelan and Tina Fey. We're hearing code words that famous alleged sexual harassers have used. Finally, Diana cops to her behavior a little later in the episode, but she has a reason. Ugh, I can't do this. What is wrong with you people? What? I have been disgusting. I have harassed the men. I've harassed you. I admitted all of it to Katie, thinking she would report me, and she didn't. No one did. Wait, you want to be reported to HR? Of course I do. I just want what the men get. $40 million to go away. Roger Ailes got 40 just for whipping it out. Billy Bush got nine just for giggling about boobies. Bill O'Reilly got 25. So obviously there's a lot of absurdity in this, as we heard in some of the other shows. And yet, at the same time, I think viewers, because of the fact that she reminds us about real cases where guys who were found to have abused women were given these vast payoffs. And I think that there's something very clear, even in the midst of the absurdity, that somehow women are always the ones who suffer in these situations. I think the fact that we see so much coverage and so much response in comedy suggests that perhaps we're still figuring out our responses, we're still figuring out how we really deal with this. And maybe these storylines in sitcoms at least allow us a little bit of distance to process all this news in a way that is a little bit less depressing. That story was produced by Studio 360's Zoe Saunders. And you can hear more from June Thomas on her podcast, The Double X Gabfest. And speaking of podcasts, Public Radio International, which brings you this show, is about to put out a new one you should keep your eye out for. The podcast is called Things That Go Boom, and it's about the worrisome state of national security in this Trump era. And here is a bit from the trailer. Hi, I'm Lacey Healy, host of the new podcast Things That Go Boom from Public Radio International and Inkstick Media. Once upon a time, I was a rodeo queen. Then I moved to D.C. The Truman National Security Project, Lacey Healy. Now- Lacey Healy is director of Middle East and Defense Policy at the Nonpartisan Research but Group. there's still a lot I don't understand about this town. And Washington, as we approach one year of his presidency, Donald Trump has turned everything I thought I knew on its head. After all, a lot of things have happened. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. And a lot of things haven't. Basically, every relevant position on on nuclear policy is open right now at state. We have an ambassador in the Bahamas, but not in Seoul. Foreign policy is a whole other kind of rodeo. But at the end of the day, how does it affect our lives? We'll explore the president's diplomatic maneuvers. Jim Mattis, when he was a general before he became secretary of defense, testified in front of Congress and said, if you don't give State Department the money they need, you're going to have to buy me more bullets. But also, what Shakespeare has to do with war. 400 years ago, he wrote Lady Percy's speech, which describes post-traumatic stress disorder better than anything I've ever found in the English language. History. We were one of eight destroyers with what we called Huck Group Alpha. Huck is an unfortunate term which sounds very warlike because it stands for hunter-killer group. And I assure you I've never killed anybody or attempted to. What nuclear deterrence has to do with being an 11-year-old boy? What if I made threats 
and then I didn't follow through on them. I mean, if there's no consequence and I can get away with it, then why not? Together, we'll dig deeper into the decisions that, for better or worse, drive so much of what we do. Things That Go Boom, a podcast about the ins, outs, and what have yous of what keeps us safe, is coming in January 2018. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts today. Things That Go Boom launches on January 22nd. And that's it for our show this week. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is Louis Mitchell. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hanson, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazaria, and I'm Kurt Anderson. Looks like we've got us a convoy. was a dark of the moon on the 6th of June in a Kenworth. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, for a Star Trek fan, becoming a Star Trek writer is living the dream. Also, kind of a nightmare. I wrote, uh, co-wrote Star Trek Generations, and in that movie, we killed Captain Kirk. I literally killed my childhood hero. An hour about the many iterations of Star Trek next time on Studio 360.